Well, it's good to be with you today. Uh, those of you that don't know me, I'm Brian. That's my better, better half. Um, so here we are wrapping up part of the story. Next week, we'll start to enter the New Testament. So far, we've been introduced to the people of God, the Israelites. The journey up to this point has been one of promises, miracles, rebellion, wars, exile, many other parts. Recently, though, we've seen how this group of people spent so long in the exile that probably around a whole generation would have grown up during this time in the exile. What do you think? What in the world were they going back to as what their ancestors called home would have been destroyed and demolished? When we think of war and conflict, oftentimes we think of the tactics that happen uh, that were used to help win the battle or the war. We might think of those important generals that were key in winning that battle or war. What we don't necessarily think of is the aftermath of war. With conflict comes destruction. In today's world, sometimes we get to see some of the pictures of the destruction that takes place. Really, I can't even imagine what it would be like and what I would feel as I walk around a community that has just been destroyed. If I'm being honest, I'd probably feel a little bit more hopeless rather than hopeful in the situation. Jerusalem was one of those places that faced destruction. We hear the stories of Nebuchadnezzar deporting all of these people out of Jerusalem over and over, and he finally got tired of them. And he had one last deportation And then around 586, he came in and destroyed Jerusalem. I wonder what it would have been like to walk the streets of Jerusalem after this. Well, you know, around 140 years later, we actually find a story of someone that did something like that. If you will, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2, starting with verse 11 through 20. If you could help me know that you've found that by standing for the reading of God's word today. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see, the trouble we are in, Jerusalem, lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. 
Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But then when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. God, I pray that you help us to hear the word that you have in store for us today. In name I pray. Amen. Who is this guy, Nehemiah? So in the beginning of this book, we find out that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now, bearing a cup may not sound like that big of a deal, but in the ancient Egyptian Persian, Assyrian, and even Jewish courts, the cupbearer was an official of high rank. These individuals would fill the king's cup and deliver it to him after drinking some of the wine to determine if it wasn't, to determine if it isn't poisoned. You would hope that you didn't work for a king that was hated, that's for sure. You know, really, it may not seem to be a big deal to us, but to this culture, this job would have been significantly more important. Nehemiah actually isn't the first cupbearer in the story that we've heard so far. Anyone remember talking about Joseph earlier this year? It was Pharaoh's chief cupbearer that remembered Joseph in prison when Pharaoh was needing a dream interpreted. It set in motion the steps that Joseph, for Joseph to become the second in command to Pharaoh and help save the people and his family from a famine. This position has opened the opportunity for Nehemiah to speak with the king who holds the power of his ancestors' land. His ancestors were important to him. You know, to me, this probably means that his parents passed down the values of his ancestry as the people of God. Nehemiah would have been raised in the exile in a land that was foreign to, to him and his family. Yet even in this foreign land, Nehemiah was taught a duty to God in the midst of all this turmoil. Marcy and I are excited for a little one to be running around, but as most of you have experienced, we recognize the challenge of continuing to raise and teach Elena about who God is. Nehemiah had several characteristics that God was able to use in this time of rebuilding Jerusalem. First of all, he was a strong leader. Those who returned from exile looked up to and ended up following him. He was patient. You know, after continue coming to Jerusalem, what was it that Nehemiah did first? He rested. He didn't do anything to assess Jerusalem for three whole days. I think when we respond to what God calls from us, sometimes it requires us to be patient. It's easy for us to get ahead of ourselves and lose focus of what God is actually calling us to do. I think that 
if we aren't careful, even tasks or ministries at church can start to become what we want and not what God wants if we aren't patient to listen to him. He was also strategic. When, we finally, when he finally did go and look at Jerusalem, when was it that he went? Verse 12, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. Why would he have done this? What sense does it make to go out at night when you can't see anything to try to assess the damage of Jerusalem? You know, it wasn't too long before this that we find a story in Ezra that may start to shed a little bit of light on why Nehemiah would have done this. Ezra 4 says this, This is a copy of the letter they sent him to the king Artaxerxes from your servants in trans-Euphrates. The king should know that the people who came up to, to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. What was the king's response? Now issue an order to those men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to, de- to the detriment of the royal interests? Nehemiah knew that the surrounding opposition did not want Jerusalem to be built. We find out later that even these surrounding opposition, they had spies intertwined in the community of the Israelites who controlled and manipulated what was going on in Jerusalem. This was an opportunity for Nehemiah to fully grasp what, the, what was going on and the demands as well as the damage or the dangers of the challenge that was in front of him. He was strategic in not letting anyone know his plans, and he went out at night so that these people would not know about his plans before he could even begin. He was also surgical with what was to be done to Jerusalem. For those of you who have undergone surgery, let me ask you this. What kind of surgeon do you want? One who jumps in without much of a plan? Or one who has taken the time to study all the ins and outs of what to expect before making any incision on you. I'd probably guess that the first one wouldn't last long in the field before making a mistake that would end his or her career. What we do for God is worthy of our best. Paul reminds us of this in Colossians 3.23 when he says, Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. With everything that we do, we should be giving it our best. Overall, for Nehemiah, it is easy to see that he was obedient. He followed God, what God was wanting from him and listened to what he had laid on his heart. Even with his best efforts, though, Nehemiah expected that there would be opposition. When we're doing what God wants, 
opposition may come. In verse 19, it introduces us to the opposition in this story, as it says, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked? Are you rebelling against the king? The opposition that Nehemiah faced came from all sides. Sanballat was the leader of, the, of Samaria. Now, for those of you who may not remember, Samaria is that region just north of Jerusalem. Prior to the exile, this is the town, the town of Samaria was actually the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Later on, you might remember a significant story of Samaria related to Jesus. That is, this is the region that Jesus encounters the woman at the well. Tobiah was the leader of the Ammonites. Now, you've probably heard that before because we hear about the Ammonites all throughout the Old Testament. Over and over, we see the tension through the battles between Judah and the Ammonites. And we read Psalms praying for deliverance from the Ammonites. The region of Ammon is sat to the east of Jerusalem, just across the Jordan River. Geshem the Arab is the last name that is mentioned in this. Geshem, he was actually a little bit more powerful of an enemy than you might guess. Evidence through archaeology and writings, it tells us that Geshem likely was the ruler of the Arabian tribes that took control of Moab and Edom. Do those names sound familiar? Moab and Edom were the regions that sat to the south and southeast of Jerusalem. They've been mentioned multiple times throughout Scripture and throughout the Israelites' history from Genesis all the way through the prophets. Why do I tell you all of this? Why am I giving you a geography lesson today? Think about where Jerusalem sat. To the west was the Mediterranean Sea. To the north was Samaria. To the northeast was Ammon. To the south and southeast was Moab and Edom. Nehemiah faced opposition that surrounded him on all sides. There was no escape plan here. I think that actually sheds a new light to this story. Yes, Nehemiah was obedient for what God was asking of him, but this is a story of faith. In Nehemiah 4, it says, Also our enemy said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. What was Nehemiah's response? After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, and your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to, to the wall, each to our own work. Even when the opposition was pretty much on his doorstep and the threat of absolute destruction seemed to be inevitable, 
Nehemiah remained faithful and called, the people, called on the people to remain faithful with him. How often do we find ourselves getting so caught up with the opposition that we start to lose focus on what God is calling us to do? Distractions are all around us that want to turn our attention away from the task at hand. Whether it is what someone says or the busyness of everyday life, so many things want to turn our focus away from what God is calling from us. Through Paul's writing, he is a bit more direct as to what this opposition is. In Ephesians 6, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We understand that there are, so, there are much greater things behind some of these distractions that sometimes honestly can feel terrifying. Yet, Nehemiah reminds us of something greater, just as he reminded the Israelites of the Lord. We too can get back to focusing on the work to be done through the same faith that Nehemiah shows here. When God's work is complete and he is praised, the opposition seems to go quiet. In Nehemiah 6, it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. You know, throughout Nehemiah, he has consistently faced opposition. When the opposition tried to intimidate him, Nehemiah praised God. When the opposition tried to threaten him through show of force, Nehemiah remained faithful to what God had called him to do. When the opposition tried to manipulate the words of the story with lies of what was happening, Nehemiah spoke the truth and prayed to God for strength. Through Nehemiah's response and actions, Nehemiah testified to what God was doing through him. Sometimes our testimony doesn't happen with words that we speak, but actions that we take. People around us see a change of who we are and understand that God is at work in our lives as well. Most importantly, though, when the work was complete, what did Nehemiah do? He made recognition of how God had helped them through it. Nehemiah remained consistent with praising God before this task, during it, and even when it was complete. Oh, how easy it is to forget that this is what we do for what we are doing for God. Even in a church, when we build a building or take on a community outreach event, it's easiest to fall, for us to fall in the trap of seeing the success as our own rather than recognizing what God did through it. Even when we had the 80th anniversary, I was reminded by the DS when he spoke of how churches often celebrate an anniversary by the pastors that they have had or the buildings that they have built. Even a building can be celebrated in a way that looks at what we did rather than what God is doing through us. 
We praise God for what he is doing and how he is at work in the life of the church. And just like Nehemiah, as we praise God, the opposition seems to go quiet. This does mean that God still calls and invites us to join in the work that needs to be done, though. I mean, let's be really clear here. The rebuilding of the walls in this story may not have happened in this way if it wasn't for Nehemiah following what God was calling from him. Many times throughout the book of Nehemiah, when the opposition came, Nehemiah responded by praying to God. When we recognize that God is calling us to do something, it's important for us to recognize that we should also be in prayer. Just like it was for Nehemiah, being in prayer helps us to find the discernment for what is coming from God and what is trying to work against God. Even in this story, it's not that Nehemiah's opposition was no longer existent. They were still there. It's that they recognized that they could not win. As we stay in close relationship with God, we keep our focus on what God wants, and the opposition has a harder time of distracting us. When everything was done, the Israelites responded by praising God. Luckily, the Israelites seem to have learned a little bit from their ancestors and the past experiences that they, they went through. What was their response when everything was complete? Nehemiah, said, Nehemiah chapter 7 says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Throughout the Old Testament, we see a pattern that has started to develop up until this point. The Israelites would start following God. Then they would let something slip here or there, and before you know it, it was like they completely forgot what the laws even said. In Hosea, we hear God say, uh, in Hosea chapter 4, we hear what God has to say about this. My people are destroyed from the lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore your children. This was Ezra and what they Ezra and Nehemiah, this was their efforts to bring the Israelites' attention back to what was important for them. With the number of times that the Israelites have rejected God's word up until this point, you almost might want to see this as a miracle for them to respond in such a way that they wanted to listen to God's law. This is something that when we hear their response, we kind of want to say, well, duh, that's what you're supposed to do. We come in here every Sunday and hear the Bible read and taught. We respond in prayer, and hopefully we respond by changing the way that we live. This is what's normal for us. But don't forget, the Israelites have been in exile for so long that many of these things may have been forgotten. You know, I've probably shared this verse with you guys before, but I want to 
share it again today in this context. Judges 2, verses 10 through 11. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who neither knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. What a powerful verse to remind us of the importance of children's ministry. It's not only our job, but rather our calling to pass down the story of who God is and how he has been in our lives. Ezra and Nehemiah understood this importance as they shared the book of the law. Now, don't get caught up in the word law here. This wasn't just a book of do's and don'ts, although that was part of it that they shared. This is what we know as the first five books of the Bible. This was the story of the beginning of creation, the story of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the story of the Exodus, the stories of God's protection, the stories of the promised land, the stories that explained who God was, who God is, and who God will be. How often do you share this story as well as your own story with your kids, your spouse, your family, your friends, or any of those that you come in contact with? This is what Nehemiah and Ezra recognized to be what was missing from the Israelites' lives. I hope we don't forget it either. Hear this saying today. Today I was warmed by fires I did not build. I drank from a well I did not dig. I sat in the shade of a tree I did not plant. Let me pause to give thanks for the efforts of those who came before me. Think about the number of people that God has used to teach you. Maybe it was your parents, teachers, friends, authors of books, pastors, speakers. You and I may never know the impact we have on someone else's life. I wonder how many generations actually grew up in the walls that were built, rebuilt in those 52 days that Nehemiah and those he was leading never knew the impact that they, each stone would have on them. God is calling us to keep sharing the story with our friends, our neighbors, but most importantly, our kids. Stand with me, if you will, today. Thankfully, Nehemiah did everything correct, right? Unfortunately, the book of Nehemiah didn't end with the Israelites listening to God's word and praising him. Nehemiah 13, we hear Nehemiah talk of his frustrations and disappointments of the Israelites who are not following God's commands. He talks of how he tried to force them to follow God's commands, even going as far as beating them into submission. Something was still missing. They had done all of this work to rebuild Jerusalem and remind and reform the way of the life of the Israelites, yet they continued to repeat what their ancestors had done before them. Something was still missing. Jeremiah 31 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, 
because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God desires a change of heart. If we do projects in the church, but don't keep God in our hearts and at the forefront of our mind, something seems to be missing. If we read scripture, but don't listen for the ways that God wants to change our heart and our mind, then we're just reading a book. If we share with our kids and family, our family, the stories of what God has done, but they can't see or know how God has changed our heart, then we may feel the same helplessness and frustration that Nehemiah felt in this story as our words will seem to fall on deaf ears and be pointless. Thankfully, God gave us a glimpse at this new covenant through the grace that we find with Jesus Christ. I invite you to listen to what God desires from you today and the ways that he wants to change your heart and mind today. I'll say yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. I'll say yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you Say 
Pray with me today. God, we thank you for everything that you do in our lives. I pray that you will help to guide us and change our hearts to reflect who you are and what you want us to be and what you want us to do. I pray that you'll give us the strength and the wisdom to share the story of who you are and what you have done in our lives to everyone around us. I pray that you will keep us safe as we leave this place and that you will bring us back to help and worship you. In your name I pray. Amen. Let me leave you with this benediction. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to be to peace. And be thankful. You are dismissed.